0: So when we left off, King Solomon had just died and um, Jeroboam, uh, whom the Lord had picked as king over the northern kingdom, you know, has fled um, uh, to Egypt and is living in the court of Pharaoh Shishak. So hopefully you remember all that. Also, remember that Solomon had burdened the people with terribly heavy taxes and forced the Israelites to do heavy labor, even if they weren't like doing slave labor. The, the foreigners did slave labor, and the Israelites were forced to like into conscripted labor. They had to serve time doing labor uh, in support of all his vast building campaigns. So, when Jeroboam hears that Solomon is dead, he goes back to Israel. Meanwhile, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, travels from Jerusalem to Shechem in the territory of Ephraim to be crowned king. Now, I find this very interesting. For one thing, Shechem is actually um, north of Ephraim in the territory of Manasseh, And traditionally, kings are crowned in either Hebron or in Jerusalem, right? That's all the only two places we've seen so far. So I'm thinking this story is set in Shechem for another reason. Um, Ephraim is where Jeroboam is from. Um, So Rehoboam has traveled right through Ephraim up into Manasseh and is going to be crowned right in the middle of the Northern Territory. So I'm thinking Rehoboam is like thumbing his nose in Jeroboam's face. And I also suspect that this is another instance where Shechem represents a place of choosing. Every single time we've seen it in scripture so far, that's what has, it has been. It has represented a place of choosing. And so here the people are gonna need to choose between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Well, Jeroboam and all the elders of Israel in the north traveled to Shechem and come before Rehoboam, saying, your father Solomon put a heavy yoke on us, but if you'll lighten the harsh labor and the heavy taxes, we will serve you. Rehoboam responds, come back in three days and I will give you my answer. Well, King Rehoboam then consults the advisors who had served his father Solomon and ask them what he should do. They tell him that if he will be a servant to the people by lightening their burden, the people will follow him faithfully. But King Rehoboam is young and rash and full of himself, and he doesn't like that wise counsel, so he asks his drinking buddies what they think he should do. And being also young and full of testosterone, they tell the peop—they say to tell the people, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke and I will make it even heavier. He scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. You can imagine that when Jeroboam and the people hear this message, it does not go over well. And they answer, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. The Israelites have made their fateful choice. Jeroboam and the elders of the ten northern tribes refuse to recognize Rehoboam as king. They leave and Rehoboam is now king only over the tribe of Judah. Rehoboam's first act as king is to flex his muscles and try to force the Israelites into continuing their hard labor. But the Israelites rise up in rebellion. They stone the man in charge of forced labor, and King Rehoboam himself just barely manages to get out of Shechem alive and return to Jerusalem. The 10 tribes in the north immediately make Jeroboam their king, and the nation prepares for civil war. But Shemaiah, a prophet of God, comes to King Rehoboam in Judah and tells him, the Lord says, do not fight your brothers, the Israelites. This is my doing. And believe it or not, King Rehoboam listens to the word of the Lord and orders his men to lay down their arms. Let's look at how the nation is divided up. This is a map of the traditional tribal boundaries. If you look in the south you'll see judah in yellow with simeon as a big blob in the middle of it the story of how that all happened is in class 26 but suffice it to say that for all intents and purposes when the bible talks about judah here it includes the land of simeon so what are the ten northern tribes well they're dan which actually has migrated to the far north by this time to the half tribe of Ephraim, which is the tribe Jeroboam is from, Reuben, Gad, the half tribe of Manasseh, which has land on both sides of the Jordan, Issachar makes six, Zebulun is seven, Asher, and Naphtali. But that's only nine. We're one tribe short. If you go just north of Judah, you'll find the tiny area allotted to the tribe of Benjamin. Jerusalem actually sits just a few miles south of here. Remember that Benjamin is Saul's tribe. For the most part, Benjamin aligns with the northern tribes, but being so close to Judah and Jerusalem, they kind of wobble between alliances, so you'll sometimes see references to Benjamites allying themselves with Judah. This becomes more pronounced as time goes by, but for the moment, They count as one of the 10 northern tribes. And as you notice, the tribe of Levi is excluded from the count entirely. If I gave you a pop quiz and said, why is that? You would immediately say, because this division is about land and the Levites have no inheritance of land. Anytime we're talking about land, the Levites aren't part of the discussion and they're not part of the counting up of the twelve. After King Rehoboam listens to the word of the Lord and lays down his arms and returns to Jerusalem, King Jeroboam is free to begin establishing his own kingdom in the north. Since Jeroboam is from the tribe of Ephraim, he establishes his capital there. Guess what town he picks? Shechem, the place of choosing. Hmm, must be some more important choices coming up. Jeroboam gets to thinking, if the people keep going to Jerusalem in Judah to offer sacrifices, they'll go right back to thinking of the house of David as their rightful king. They'll start following Rehoboam instead of me. So he gets the advice of his counselors and decides the best course of action will be to set up designated places of worship inside of the northern kingdom of Israel. So he sets one up in the far north in Dan, And one in the southern part of the region at Bethel, just 12 miles north of Jerusalem in the territory of Benjamin. Bethel has been a holy place, as you know, throughout all of the nation's history. So it seems to be the perfect choice. Now, the Lord had said he would set Jeroboam up as king of the ten northern tribes, but he hadn't actually said what to do about worship. As far as I know, the Lord fully intended the people to keep coming to the temple in Jerusalem. And it doesn't say that Jeroboam even consults the Lord about this. Somehow, I don't think this is going to end well. And sure enough, it doesn't take any time at all for things to go completely crosswise. Jeroboam orders golden calves to be set up, one in Dan and one at Bethel, for the people to worship. He says, Here, O Israel, are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. And he builds shrines to those golden calves and hires priests for them who are not even Levites. And he sets up a new holy festival, and he himself goes to Bethel to worship the golden calf there. As you can imagine, the Lord is not pleased. This is the worst thing Jeroboam could have possibly done, right? So the Lord sends a man of God from Judah up to Bethel, which, as you know, it's just a few miles. In the Hebrew Bible, the phrase, quote, man of God is interchangeable with prophet. I'm using man of God here for this particular man to keep this story from getting confusing. The man of God arrives just as King King Jeroboam is making his sacrifice to the golden calf. The man of God says, altar, O altar, a son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. And on you, O altar, he will burn the bones of the so-called priests who are making offerings here to the golden calf. Then he says, and this is the sign that my words are true. This altar will now split apart and the ashes will spill on the ground. King Jeroboam stretches out his hand and points at the man of God, crying, seize him. But immediately his hand is shriveled up and the altar splits in two and all the ashes spill out. King Jeroboam grasps his shriveled hand and cries to the man of God, intercede, intercede with the Lord your God and pray that my hand be restored. The man of God prays and the Lord does restore King Jeroboam's hand, so it's as good as new. Then the king says, come dine with me and I will give you a gift of thanks. But the man of God says, I will not. The Lord told me not to eat bread or drink water here or even return home by the way I came. Even if you offered me half your kingdom, I would not take it. And so the man of God gets on his donkey and heads back home to Judah. But. There is another prophet of God living in Bethel. He is old and had not gone to the king's big sacrifice. When his sons arrive home and tell him all the crazy things that just happened, he gets on his donkey and goes searching for the man of God. He finds him sitting under a tree and says, I too am a prophet just like you. And an angel brought word to me from the Lord saying, go get the man of God and bring him home with you and give him food and drink. Now this is a total lie, a complete fabrication. But the man of God is tired after his ordeal with Jeroboam and he believes the older prophet. So he returns to Bethel with him. But while they are eating and drinking, The word of the Lord actually does come upon the older prophet, and he cries out to the man of God, you have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept his command he gave you. Therefore, you will not be buried in the tomb of your fathers. That, as you know, is a terrible curse in this ancient time. But what's done is done. and So they saddle up the man of God's donkey, and he once again sets out for Judah. This time, he is attacked by a lion and is killed. The old prophet hears the news and knows immediately that the man killed must be the man of God. He goes to find him, and there in the road is the body of the man of God. His donkey is standing beside his body, and so is the lion. The old prophet picks up the body of the man of God and carries him back to Bethel, and lays him in his own family tomb, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord. He tells his sons, when I die, bury me here in this tomb too, for the words this man spoke were of God and will surely come true. We also will make a note of the words of the man of God. He said a man named Josiah would rise up from the house of David and would burn the bones of the false prophets on the altar here at Bethel. That hasn't happened yet, so we'll watch for it as the story unwinds. Now that his arm is healed, King Jeroboam goes on his merry way, not seeming to be daunted at all by his encounter with the living God. He repairs the altar, appoints more priests in his high places, and continues to promote idol worship in Israel. In due time, Jeroboam's son falls gravely ill. Does King Jeroboam turn to his golden calves for help? Of course not. He knows they're useless. He only set them up to keep the people from going to Jerusalem so as to keep them loyal to him. When it comes to his son's life, who does he turn to? Yahweh, of course. He tells his wife to disguise herself so no one will know who she is. Then she's to go find the prophet Ahijah in Shiloh. Remember that Ahijah is the prophet who tore his cloak into pieces and prophesied that God would give 10 tribes of the kingdom to Jeroboam. So Jeroboam knows that Ahijah is the real deal. Sometimes I pronounce it Ahijah. That's an anglicized pronunciation. Same guy. Anyway, he's a true prophet of God. It's been several years by now and Ahijah has grown old and blind. Nevertheless, the Lord warns Ahijah that Jeroboam's wife is coming in disguise to ask about her son who is ill. So when Ahijah hears her knock on the door, he says, Come in, wife of Jeroboam, why are you in disguise? (laughs) You can imagine her consternation since Ahijah is completely blind. And he just says, Tell your husband Jeroboam, this is what the Lord says I raised you up and made you king over my people Israel. I tore the kingdom from the house of David and gave it to you. I took it from David, who loved me and followed me with all his heart, and I gave it to you, but you have done more evil than all those who lived before you. You have made idols of metal. You have provoked me to anger. You have thrust me behind your back. Because of this, I am going to bring disaster on your house. I will burn the house of Jeroboam as one burns dung until it is all gone. Dogs will eat those of your family who die in the city and birds will eat those who die in the country. Then Ahijah speaks to Jeroboam's wife saying, go home. The minute you set foot in your city, your son will die. All of Israel will mourn him, because he is the only one in the entire house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord has found anything good. Now, hang on a minute here. I find this very interesting. The death of this innocent child will undoubtedly cause suffering and grief in his father and in the nation, but his death is not a punishment of him. It's not a punishment of the child. The child, it says here clearly, is the only one in the house of Jeroboam in whom the Lord found anything good. This is another example where we see that the Lord views our lives as a continuum and not in the limited way we view it. Physical death of our bodies is not an ending to the Lord. Then Ahijah continues saying, The Lord will raise up a new king over Israel, one who will cut off the family of Jeroboam. Israel itself will be uprooted from this good land, the land that God promised to them. Because they insist on worshiping idols and making a share of poles. Israel will be scattered in the lands beyond the Euphrates the Lord will give Israel up. But terrible, horrible words. This is the first time the Lord has said he will dissolve Israel entirely and scatter the people across the nations. This should absolutely strike a chill in your heart and it certainly strikes deeply in the heart of Jeroboam's wife, she rises at once and returns home. As she steps over the threshold of her house, her son perishes. The nation of Israel buries him and mourns for him. At this point, the story's going to begin hopping back and forth between the kingdom of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The reigns of the kings in the north and the south will overlap, and it can get confusing when you're reading. We'll keep up with the various kings on a table so we can kind of visually keep track of where we are. So while all this is going on in Israel, King Rehoboam, Solomon's son, has been building up his defenses in Judah, making swords and shields, building up stockpiles of supplies and fortifying cities. He's expecting civil war with Israel. Some of the cities he fortifies are in Benjamin, which is the buffer between the two nations. And by fortifying these cities, Rehoboam effectively takes the territory of Benjamin for his own. On top of this, the Levites and priests scattered throughout Israel are migrating south to Judah. Remember that Jeroboam has been replacing them with priests of his own who will lead idol worship. So any priest or Levite who wants to follow God ends up having to abandon their home and seek refuge in Judah. Rehoboam actually turns out to be a pretty wise king once he grows up a little. He marries 18 wives and 60 concubines. Rehoboam strengthens Judah's defense, and the true priests and Levites of God lead worship at the temple in Jerusalem. But as tends to happen when all is at peace, the people begin to turn to idols. After all, they don't need Yahweh in a time of peace, right? Over the next two years, Rehoboam and the people of Judah forsake the Lord God and abandon his laws. They do not walk in justice. And so the Lord withdraws his hedge of protection from Judah. Remember Pharaoh Shishak, Jeroboam's ally in Egypt? Remember him? Well, Shishak gathers his forces and attacks Judah. He captures Rehoboam's fortified cities and gets as far as the gates of Jerusalem. There are actual historical Egyptian records of this offensive that indicate Shishak's forces actually make it as far north as the plain of Jezreel. And a victory steal, that's and uh, uh, it's like a little monument, it's an engraved marker, was discovered in Megiddo in northern Israel. Shishak's campaign takes place in 925-926 BCE. King Rehoboam and the people are huddled inside the city walls of Jerusalem, trembling in fear. Shishak has brought 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horsemen, and troops from Egypt and several surrounding countries. The prophet Shemaiah comes to Rehoboam and his court and says, This is what the Lord says. You have abandoned me. Therefore, I now abandon you to Shishak. And once again, a remarkable thing happens. Rehoboam and his court humble themselves before the Lord saying, you're right, Lord, what you have decreed is just. And the Lord relents. Shemaiah says, because you have humbled yourselves, the Lord will not allow Shishak to utterly destroy you, but you will become subject to the Pharaoh. So you learn the difference between serving God and serving the kings of other lands. I want you to notice that God is always really, really, really clear about the connection between what someone has done and what the consequences are when there is a connection. A lot of times, I mean, there's just famine in the land or there's whatever God is dealing with kings here. Um, so when you're trying to formulate your theology from these stories, keep in mind, this is God talking to kings, kings who are leading people astray. God sends prophets. He's really clear about it. Um, th- this is not God just you know, randomly punishing you without telling you what's going on. I mean, God just doesn't do that. No parent would do that. No good parent would do that. Anyway, so Shishak attacks Jerusalem. He carries off all the treasures that are in the temple and all the treasures in King Rehoboam's palace, the palace Solomon built. But Shishak spares Rehoboam's life, making him a vassal of Egypt instead. Rehoboam's reign is marked by constant warfare. Even after becoming a vassal of Egypt, he still fights constantly with Jeroboam and Israel in the north. Jeroboam outlives Rehoboam. Rehoboam dies and his son Abijah comes to the throne. Not to be confused with Ahijah, that prophet we were just talking about. Abijah picks right up where Rehoboam left off and continues to war with Jeroboam. Battle lines are drawn up. King Abijah of Judah goes to battle with 400,000 fighting men. I mean, obviously one of those inflated numbers, right? lots and lots of fighting men, while King Jeroboam of Israel opposes him with 800,000 troops of his own. So, you know, we're just talking apples and apples here. Jeroboam has twice as many fighting men of Abijah, of Judah, and it's a lot of men. They meet in the territory of Ephraim. King Abijah climbs to a high place and shouts, men of Israel, listen to me, Don't you know the Lord God of Israel has given the kingship of Israel to the house of David forever with a covenant of salt? Jeroboam is just a rebel who opposed King Rehoboam when he was young and weak. Now, we don't know what a covenant of salt was. It's not talked about. But the general consensus among scholars is that it was considered extra binding, perhaps irrevocable. It definitely adds gravitas and significance to the covenant. I think a wonderful meditation might be to think about this in relation to Jesus' words that we are the salt of the earth. Anyway, Abijah shouts, you have made golden calves for yourselves and have driven all the priests and Levites out of your land. We, however, have remained faithful to the Lord our God. The true priests and Levites offer sacrifices to Yahweh every morning and every evening. God is with us, not with you. Do not fight against the Lord your God, for you will not succeed. Well, while King Abijah is shouting, King Jeroboam, sends troops sneaking around to the rear so that Judah's troops are completely surrounded. When the men of Judah realize they're being ambushed, they cry out to the Lord. The priests blow their trumpets and the men of Judah raise a battle cry. And God delivers the men of Israel into their hands. Jeroboam and his men suffer heavy casualties. Abijah chases Jeroboam and takes back the town of Bethel and several others in the southern part of Israel. Jeroboam never again regains his power. He eventually dies. The prophecy said his body would not be buried, but scripture doesn't give us any details of what happens. His son Nadab ascends to the throne in Israel. While in Judah, Abijah grows in strength. Nadab only reigns two years in Israel. All we know about him is that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, presumably continuing the idol worship established by his father. He's assassinated by Baasha of the tribe of Issachar. And Baasha seizes the throne of Israel. He immediately kills Jeroboam's entire extended family, fulfilling the word of the Lord years earlier. But Baasha also does evil in the sight of the Lord. And the word of the Lord comes to a prophet named Jehu, who says to Baasha, I lifted you up from the dust and made you leader of my people Israel. But you have walked in the ways of Jeroboam and have caused my people to sin and to provoke me to anger. Therefore, I am about to consume you and your house. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the one you followed. Dogs will eat those of the house of Baasha who die in the city, and birds will feed on those who die in the country. So we need to back up and see what was happening in Judah during this time. Abijah only reigns three years in Judah, and he is succeeded by his son, Asa. Asa does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. He expels all the male shrine prostitutes from Judah and gets rid of all the idols. And he even deposes his own grandmother from her post as queen mother because she set up and worshiped in Asherah pole. Asa's reforms attract people from the northern tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, as well as those from Simeon, already living in the territory of Judah. So you can see how fluid these borders actually are. They're pretty porous. People are kind of switching. It reminds me of the uh, ancient border between Scotland and England. People kind of moving back and forth all the time. So Asa restores silver and gold articles to the temple, but then he runs into trouble. Baasha, the king of Israel, blockades Judah. So Asa takes all the silver and gold he's got in either the palace or the temple and goes to King Ben-Hadad, king of Aram. He convinces Ben-Hadad to break his treaty with Baasha of Israel and join forces with Judah instead. In this way, Asa is able to conquer several regions in Israel and force Baasha to withdraw. So you can see that the Arameans like are a big power um, in this in the um, balance of power here. And so whichever side they um, are allied to, Israel or Judah, that side is going to prevail. But there's a terrible cost. The prophet Hanani speaks to Asa. You relied on the king of Aram instead of the Lord your God. The Lord would have utterly destroyed the armies of Aram if you'd asked him. But now you have allied yourself with Aram and now you will always be at war. This makes Asa furious and he throws Hanani in prison. We'll stop here. Asa is king in Judah and he's becoming more and more cruel as he ages. And after reigning 24 years, king of Baasha of Israel dies. And his son, Elah, becomes king of Israel. We'll pick up here next week. So in our breakout groups, we're going to go back to that story where the Lord gives specific instructions to the man of God. The Lord gives that man of God a message for King Jeroboam and tells him, don't eat or drink, or drink bread or water or return by the way you came. But after the man of God leaves and is on his way home, he's met by another prophet of God who lies to him and tells him an angel from the Lord said for the man of God to go to the prophet's home and eat and drink with him. The man of God believes the lying prophet and it costs him his life. So there's two things to note here. The man of God heard the Lord's instructions clearly not to eat or drink and the lying prophet, number two, was actually truly a prophet of God. He did have the gift of hearing from the Lord. He just lied about it this time. So let's think about this situation. I've given you the background, so skip straight to the questions in your study guide. Well, I guess our room took you at your word and said it was time to leave. (laughs) It eventually will pop everybody in. You somebody know? They don't wait,
1: have somebody gave us some bad advice to leave the room early.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We didn't no, examine we, it enough.
3: Yeah. Yeah, we, we looked at the next question uh, and thought, yeah, no. Nine yeah. seconds. And Ross said, Ross said, hold your tongue.
2: <laughs> no, yeah, guard your tongue.
0: Guard yeah. your tongue. There you go. So I think it's guard your heart too. <laughs>
2: yes
1: yeah <laughs> yeah i love your story you know i don't know if you remember remember the study you did at my house long ago with the kings and you you know i i don't forget it
0: yeah we did jeremiah jeremiah together and so you you've already seen this table that I that we're going through i've
1: seen some of it i remember it
0: yeah <laughs> yeah no. no. Yeah, I was saying it's really helpful because when I've
3: read through this in the past, you know, so many similar names, so many, you know, all this overlapping and it just gets so confusing. Yeah. Who's in in the South? Who's good? Who's bad? Who's a good prophet? Who's a bad prophet? But, you know, what the heck is going on?
0: Right. And to get it on a chart really helps.
3: (laughs) I've said this for a long time that I don't understand why churches or many pastors don't take cues from best practices in education. And use some of those things to help people remember things. That's why I love about Gail; she's got good stuff. <laughs>
0: well, that's because I'm that's because I'm visual myself. You know, I if you mm-hmm. just tell it to me, it's going to go in one ear and out the other. So, yeah, um, there's a lot of people like that. You still have good stuff. My favorite yeah. is the chiasm. That's my favorite new tool. You like chi- I like chiasm's too. Um, so we the the big question. I mean, it was really just one question, and and the questions on the sheet were coming at it from different ways. Um, and, but what I was getting at here was when somebody who is who whom you respect and who is a person who knows the Lord uh, comes to you and says. I have a word of the Lord for you. The Lord told me to tell you this X, Y, Z, or if they're throwing scripture at you um, and the message, whatever the message is, whether it's good, bad, or, you know, you need to repent or whether it's praise, you know, either way. What, you know, when this, let's start with historically in the, in the um, story, what should the man of God have done When that older prophet came to him and said, the Lord told me to bring you home and give you something to eat and drink.
3: I call it litmus test. Ross called it referring back to second Timothy. I think Barb did too. I mean, if he had clear instructions from God, he had clear instructions from God. But we also talked about human error, fallibility, being tired, being weak, you know. Yeah,
0: he was but, clearly tired. I mean, that had to have just wiped him out having to go face the king and have the, you know, the king's arm shrivel up and the altar split and all that stuff. And he was hungry. He was <laughs> hungry and thirsty. So see,
3: been we're weak, it's easy to listen to the easy way out. Yeah,
2: I bet he I mean, he makes a nice person. He just wanted to be treated nicely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Someone else to
2: be in charge for a moment, you
3: know? Yeah, I think think at the very least, he probably should have gone back to just try and confirm with the Lord. But you can see where he would respect the fact that this was a prophet, an older man, an elder. And this prophet said, God told me to give you hospitality, which was a big deal back in that time and culture. And... He screwed up.
1: But still, that that offer of hospitality was contrary to the message that he had received from God. Yeah. And and to really boil it down to its simplest form, it's like, okay, you've got a message from God on one hand. On the other hand, you have a message from some person who's, and the message is contradictory to the one you got from God. What should you do? It seems pretty
4: simple.
0: (laughs) It would seem pretty simple, you know, if, when you put it like that. And probably if we told told that poor uh, in retrospect, you know, as he's being eaten by the lion, he probably figured that out. But, <laughs> 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 but but I think, you know, being human, don't we all like immediately go to that place of self-doubt to yes. know, hear the yeah. Lord? Yeah. Well, Gail, what did he brought up?
4: A, a real concise idea here and that is listening to the other prophet listening to the lord knowing your message and he was saying we need to disregard labels you know the label of that prophet oh i like that that's
1: good Me too. To
3: well,
1: that is, you know you uh, know
3: yeah, I, I'm thinking of so many world applications I could put that rule to. Very good right now.
1: Well, we already had an example of this with Balaam and Balak.
0: Yes, yay! Nobody remembered Balaam!
1: <laughs> <laughs> he had to have a donkey set him straight.
0: <laughs> it's the same same thing, right?
2: Yeah. Well, we also touched on that humans are humans and a lot of humans will have their own agenda. And just because they're have a label that's important doesn't mean that they don't have their own agenda.
3: The problem with that is, cause I shared, I've had people come to me, you know, but never have been affected as well. I have a friend that I worked with who went through some life struggles and came out of it really seeking the Lord and got involved with the church that I feel has led him astray very much because he is dead set. Gail, I kind of referred to him once in a small talk with you. Anyway, um, his son is gay and he's also autistic. And he has completely shunned his son because he is quoting or feels that it's very specific in the Bible. And he's gotten this from his pastor. And so here is the problem with a misguided labeled prophet who's led his sheep astray big time and you know I've gently tried to talk to him about some things and he doesn't want to hear it and that kind of leads to number four which by your guidance is that I don't know that we approach people about the Lord first we sit with them where they are first and then try to go there and maybe I'm wrong and that's not the, you know what you would want to say but now that you and I've talked about that, about sitting with somebody where they are in the water a little bit and then going to them, I think that's how I would, you know, guard my own tongue. Because if it's if it's not well received or wanted, you can run that person off and you've lost your opportunity to be a support for them. So
0: yes, I, I you I know I really think story. that we are called to be in relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. We are called to um, bind each other's wounds. We yes. are called to um, maybe shine a, a flashlight ahead and say, "Well, have you considered this going this direction?" <laughs> you know, um, but we are not God. No, and we need to not get in between God and this person. Um, it that we can offer information we can offer support we can offer examples of how you know how the path they're going leads to death and how the path they might choose otherwise can lead leads to life we can point out the fruit but i have a real problem with people like me who have a gift of authority People, people, hear me, and for some reason, pay attention to what I say. That is not because I, that's that's just a gift. You know, the Lord allows me to speak with authority, but that doesn't mean I'm right. I can. Mm-hmm. You, you all know that the gifts of the Lord are irrevocable, regardless of how they're used. Right, by Marlene. Um, Marlene, the the gifts of the Lord can be misused. I could speak lies to you with authority, you know? Yeah. Um and so it's really really important um that that we recognize that our gifts belong to the Lord. Yeah. Right? Well, you know. Yeah. Go ahead. I'll, okay. Also, I mean, and it was brought
2: up that, you know, that as humans, we tend to, especially people of authority, um, that, you know, have authority, but of uh, people of authority, we tend to say, okay, I mean, and that can be pastors, priests, um, doctors. Yeah. And as we all know, that there is abuse mm-hmm. in, in many of those roles um, or a parent you know, or anything like that. And, um, it's just, uh, it's, it's a hard thing to deal with. I mean, you know, that last question was, you know, how, how do you guard your own tongue? And that's, you know, while being open to the urging of the Lord. And that is really, you know, should is the operative word here. We should do this and we should do that, but do we, we are human and I'm not, I, I hope I'm not rationalizing and making excuses right. here, but, um, it's, it, that's with that relationship with people, we have to have that relationship with God too, and be comfortable in that and be right. open to his guidance.
3: But when you, but when you mentioned about, um, oh you just said it and I've already forgot it. It's brain fog. I'm problem, but, but I believe that there are people who believe that they have the word of law who are well-intentioned when you talk about lies, oh yes, who don't believe they're lying. Like my friend's pastor who believes that his son is this big sinner because yes. he's taken something out of concept. And that's one thing that I really appreciate about Gail is that she's always referring us to look at the big picture and what is the history that we have seen God do. Because I was raised in a very strict, um, not the strictest, but Lutheran church and went to Methodist. And when I start seeing ideologies vary is when I had to say, okay, now's when I need to examine what I know about God. And what does the Bible tell me about God? And what is God saying to me about himself? So, and I think that's
0: probably where people run into trouble. But clearly in, in these stories, there are prophets who are speaking the word of the Lord yes. to yes. somebody. Sure. You know, so sure. how do you tell the difference?
4: <laughs> I think for, for us, we, you know, we've come in a little later in this Bible study But there has been a pattern that we have seen kind of at the end where it is very common for at that time, people speaking, the Lord speaking through people. And so now, though, in our culture, I find that that anytime someone is saying the Lord says, I almost have like the opposite effect of like it's almost a red flag. Because if someone thinks they need to tell me (laughs) what the Lord is, then they're not trusting that the Lord is with me and can speak and convict me in his time. And so I I find it interesting how we've kind of gone from a culture where we are so used and conditioned to hear from the Lord through others to now, I feel like I am very hesitant that if someone starts the conversation what the Lord tells me, I, I almost put this automatic uh, barrier where I'm like, ah, I, I. I have a relationship with the Lord and, and if and when he's ready to convict me and show me something, he will. I don't quite necessarily trust when someone is telling me that. So I, I find this interesting shift that has happened culturally where before that was the norm. So of I course agree. this guy would would hear and, and follow what this prophet said because God spoke to everybody through other people back then.
2: I um. also wonder um, how... These The prophets, I mean, how did they get their name out there so that they could speak to kings and stuff like that without, or was it just that anybody could walk up to the king and speak to him? I, I don't understand how that whole dynamic works. I think it Woody brought it up that got thing. me really
0: thinking. It was a thing back then, and, and I'm going to touch on it in a later lesson here in another week or two, but, but really the way it worked, was, um, there would, they would have just like in the new Testament, how you remember John the Baptist and how he had disciples around him and they wandered out in the desert and they had like uh, Mm -hmm. a mission, you know, they had a mission and they baptized people and called them to repentance. And that was their message. And then Jesus was a, a local rabbi and he called disciples to himself students to himself and he had a little school you know and he had a message the kingdom of heaven is here it is now you know and he had this consistent message well that that we feel we understand that and we see that operating in new testament times that had roots all the way back here where in this period where we're studying where there were there would be a prophet, a personality, a charismatic kind of personality, um, who had a particular message from the Lord, and they would gather schools of prophets, a school of prophets. They would gather disciples, other prophets around them, and they would be called schools of prophets. That's that's I don't know. I don't think that's what they were called back then. That's what scholars call them now. So um, that so so each prophet would gain um, followers, adherents, people who would preach his message and and spread it around the countryside so you can see that the the bigger his school the more important he is and the more noticeable he is and the more people are listening to him. so it's just like anything else um, in politics. <laughs> the more voters you got, the more the the king is going to listen to you. It works exactly the same way back then. Um, And nowadays.
1: Well, let me just say in this case, it was very clear, right? The real guy said, I'm going to prove to you, I'm a prophet, right? What he did to the altar. Not to mention the shrivel up of the the arm. Uh, Hello, pretty clear indicator. Uh, I would think, yeah, and you know, there's a saying, you know, uh, uh, Jewish people are all about signs, right?
0: Yep, yep, yep. And so, and Jesus had signs, and John the Baptist had signs, and all these prophets back then. God is going to show up, God is going to show up. You can just make that a billboard, you know.
2: Yeah, you know, you were talking about your little um, prophet schools, your schools of prophets. Mm -hmm. Um, Nowadays, we might call those cults. So, um, you know, again, we uh, again, it has to do with our own by Woody. It has to do with our own discernment and our own relationship with God and, you know, and using that um, uh, the access that we have to God.
1: Yeah, yes. so that's it's why. So that's why I keep coming. You know, as, as I said earlier, come back to Second Timothy. Uh, you need to be a workman. that shows thyself approved, and you know, uh, rightly dividing the word of truth. And it just means you got to be. You got. You got to study the Bible. You got to. You got to put in the work.
0: Well, I think that people often take the Bible and twist it, though. Take it out of context. They, Call, they take the words and they put them in their own mouths and say, this is the word of the Lord, because I can point to it in black and white. And so I, I think that
1: you this, can. Yep. You can take things out of context. You can twist them.
0: Yeah. Well, and people do. Um, and so I think um, we're, we're out of time. And I want to wrap up by offering you some um, guide guidance guidelines that you can use something practical that can help Um, one of the things that you'll find in scripture later on is uh it's just one verse it's a proof text i don't build theology on proof texts but somebody um uh there is a verse later on that says you know if the word of the prophet is true if it's truly a word of the lord it will happen you know (laughs) end of story. I'm not sure that you can argue it the other way around. If something happens, therefore, you know, somebody who predicted it was was necessarily of the Lord, but it does work in the direction of if the Lord said it, it will happen. Um, the the Except that the Lord often has mercy when people repent. And that really ticked Jonah off, as we'll find out later. <laughs> He has like a a real temper tantrum over that part Um, that that, so my um, guideline that I would give to you is the what Jesus gave us. Jesus himself knew that it was just about impossible for us to tell the difference between the voices on the surface. People who give, who will say they're speaking from the Lord and they're not, and they sound good. That's what these churches are doing. You know, people are speaking from the Lord and their message may be hard to take and they're actually speaking from the Lord. So how do you tell the difference? There is very, I, the Lord is not going to put you in a position of asking you to do something drastic immediately without making it very clear to you in your heart, yourself, that that's the direction you need to go, okay? So you have time on your side. You can always take on board what the person has said and then turn around and carry it yourself to the Lord. And say, Lord, talk to me about this. I'm listening. And then listen. The other thing is to look at what happens if you follow what that person says. If you are going to do what that person says, the question is, what will the fruit be? The question is, is this going to give life or is this going to cause someone to hate themselves, do harm to themselves? You know, what will the fruit of this action be? And the third thing that you can do is look at this word from the Lord and ask, Is this congruent with these great, big, broad principles that we are learning here in scripture about who God is? Is this a word of mercy, a word of compassion, a word of love? Is it drawing me closer and others closer to God? And that last one is the golden standard. Is this word drawing me closer to who God really is? The only time God gets violent in this you know, these stories that we're listening to when he's violent with these leaders, when these, when these messages are, I'm going to smite you, I'm going you know, <laughs> to kill you, I'm going to kill off all your kids, I'm going to wipe you from the face of the earth. Every single time, it is because that leader has willfully and for their own purposes, drug the people away from God. So if you're not doing that, if you're not like dragging people away from God. Then you're not in a position that God's going to be like smiting you, you know. God cares about what where you lead other people. God cares about the direction you're going. This is all about which way are you facing. And that is the golden standard for determining whether the word is from the Lord or not. And the corollary is that's probably the same standard you need to be applying when you think you've heard a word from the Lord for someone else. I definitely think two, three, four, five, six times before I say something like that. That's all I have to offer today, folks. Bye. Bye. Mm